Thanks for being with us this Saturday morning. Well, we've been talking about forest fires because we are in the thick of forest fire season and we've been covering and following along with the various fires, not only burning here in BC, but other parts of Canada and the United States as well. Uh, My next guest has written extensively about this. Ed Struzik is a fellow with the Queen's Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University in Ontario and joins us on the line now. Ed Struzik, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? And I know you have written about this and certainly got a lot of attention after publishing your book uh, first in 2017, Firestorm, How Wildfire Will Shape Our Future. Uh, what, what is perhaps the number one thing we should be looking at, at how forest fires burn today? Well, I think that the, probably the most important thing is that it's not going to get any better. That, uh, that uh, smoke, you know, that is covering most of British Columbia and ruining a lot of summers so far is going to be uh, much more routine in the future than it has been in the past. And it's, I know it's going to be annoying, but I think that's what's going to happen. And uh, I think we're going to have to start adapting to this new paradigm that's unfolding. But I think we've got to also start doing a lot of things. And such as, where would we even start? Well, number one, I think that, you know, we've got to give our firefighters, you know, which are among the best in the world, uh, have got to be given new tools to be able to deal with this new fire situation that we're seeing in the forest. Uh, These guys, by the end of the fire season, are, you know, really stressed out. Uh, uh, You can imagine they're just going uh, 24 hours a day trying to keep on top of it, Uh, you know, it uh, it, it it can't continue this way because we don't have enough resources to be put to put out every fire. So we need to develop new tools such as uh, computer models, which show us where the next fire is most likely to start, so that we can deploy uh, resources there. Uh, developing unmanned aircraft and dr- drones uh, to be able to deal and manage fires. Um, better vegetation maps to show, you know, where a fire is likely to accelerate, you know, move quick, more quickly or move slowly. Uh, there's so many things that we can do that we're really not doing fast enough right now. So it sounds like we're being more reactive to the situations rather than we could be trying to get ahead of it. Well, I had one BC firefighter who fought for 36 years uh, send me a note and saying uh, in frustration that in his experience, you know, we're very glad to open our wallets to help people recover from disasters like fire. Uh, But when it comes to prevention or better responses, uh, everybody says, you know, there's there's no money in the bank for that kind of thing. And we see that happening over and over and over again. And I think that's just got to change. Because we tend to, or, or do you think there is too much that we look at fire as all negative, whereas there is, there is a reason why that we have forest fires, not suggesting the loss of, of homes and structures, but, but it is something that, that's naturally occurring, and there's a, there's a, there is a plus side to having fires in certain areas. Absolutely. You know, there's no question about it. Is fire is a natural part of, uh, you know, of the ecosystem, and we need it to regenerate our forests. The younger forests are more resilient to fire. Uh, you know, uh, woodpeckers and owls, uh, you know, come into a fire area immediately after a burn. 
grizzly bears and black bears benefit from the the berries that begin to grow. You know, once they're expo- once the soil is exposed to sunshine, there's just so many benefits to fire. But the problem is, is that we've right now we've got too many people on the landscape, in these forested landscapes, either living, working, or playing. And we've got to figure out a way of giving room for fires to burn naturally and uh, to keep people out or educate people so they don't start fires in areas where we've got to deploy a lot of resources to protect homes and buildings. I mean, it's a very complicated situation, but I think what we really need is a lot more investment in wildfire science and also those new tools that firefighters and fire managers and forest managers need uh, to be able to manage the situation. And, you know, we've, it's an economic question as well. As the forestry industry, which is very big in British Columbia, is eventually going to get hurt uh, by this because there are already restrictions on where they can cut timber. But in the future, if uh, areas that, you know, they're allotted continue to burn, people are going to be out of work. And and like you said as well, the smoke that we've been seeing and smelling and breathing in in um, in Metro Vancouver in the more urban areas. I, I mean, perhaps inconvenience shouldn't be the motivator for this to do something about this, but it certainly does remind people. It it really does, you know. And I think that you know, the, the, you can equate this kind of smoke to what people breathe in when uh, they smoke cigarettes. Most of the same chemicals that you see in uh, smoke from a wildfire is contained in uh, smoke from tobacco. Um, it's not good for you. And, um, you know, we, most of us who are healthy can get by after three or four days, but those people with respiratory problems uh, really are vulnerable. And we know that uh, this smoke can travel long distances. I'm in Edmonton here today, and for the past four days we've had a Vancouver fog with an orange tinge to it. And, you know, I, I, I jog. I, I, I wouldn't think of jogging in that kind of smoke. Um, so, you know, we're all affected by this. And I think that we really need to get decision makers, our politicians, to start reacting to this. Uh, you mentioned some of the tools, uh, things uh, such as uh, unmanned aircraft or better better risk maps. Are we stuck in a pattern where we're fighting fires, a situation that's changing, but we're using the same technology we've always used? Well, pretty much. You know, so many of our vegetation maps, I'll give you an example of the big Fort McMurray fire, that uh, the vegetation maps that they use to see, you know, how fast that fire might move through that landscape were, you know, they were 10 to 15 years old, and they really didn't take into account uh, a lot of the new growth, the coniferous trees that were growing beneath, say, the aspen that don't burn as uh, as quickly as, say, a, a, a pine or a spruce tree. And so when the fire, where they thought it was going to slow down, it actually sped up, and that caught them off uh, by surprise. And I think we're seeing this right across the country, is that we need to have a better vegetation maps to tell, uh, tell fire managers exactly what is going to happen when a fire hits this particular area. But we're also seeing, you know, like in California right now, you know, normally a fire moves uphill, up a mountainside. Uh, but those fires are burning so hot that they're not only burning up, but they're actually going down, too, because everything is so hot. And in that case, uh, you know, they, they, they're, they're creating their own fire tornadoes. 
um, we're starting to see behavior that uh, we haven't really seen uh, in the past. And I think that this is throwing a lot of the wildfire managers um, uh, off base. They're, you know, it, it's difficult enough to fight a big fire, wind-driven fire. It's harder when you don't know, you know whether or not this fire is going to create its own thunderstorm and start shooting out lightning and starting a fire 20 or 30 kilometers in advance of it, as they did in Fort McMurray in 2016. Hmm. Do we need, does it need to be a national initiative, do you think? I think I think it needs to be three things. I think we need to have, you know, the provinces, the territories, and the federal government, perhaps the federal government, taking the lead. And I think we need the private sector. We need the, you know, the, the, the timber industry involved. We need indigenous communities involved because, you know, they represent only 4% of our population, but they're 40% of the evacuations in the country. We can't keep flying these people out in the summer and putting them up in the hotels and say, wait. I mean, it's just, this, this, isn't, this isn't right. So I think we happen to have a national strategies where all the players come together. And I know the Canadian Forest Service is trying to develop this plan, but it's, it's a slow process because it's not a priority right now within the federal government. And I'm afraid that what it's going to take to really get people to start moving on this is a lot of people dead on the landscape. And I really, really think that, and, and I, I'm not alone in thinking about that. I talk to my colleagues and wildfire fighters who, you know, uh, have nightmares at night, you know, wondering, is this fire going to result in a dozen, a hundred, two hundred, maybe a thousand people dead? Um, we think that outlandish now, but that is a real possibility. Hmm. Well, on that note, uh, we uh, hopefully people will, will be paying more attention to it and realizing uh, the importance of that. We'll have to leave it there. Ed Struzik, thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us this morning. Thanks for having me on. All right. That is uh, Ed Struzik. He's a fellow Queen's Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy School of Policy Studies at Queen's University, Ontario. And you can uh, read the book that was put out uh, last year called... Uh, Firestorm, How Wildfire Will Shape Our Future. That was published in 2017. And he's also written uh, just a couple of days ago in uh, McLean's. Well, as you likely heard in the news, the city of Victoria is set to remove a statue of John A. Macdonald outside City Hall. So we're going to bring in the mayor of Victoria. Lisa Helps is joining us on the line this morning. Mayor Helps, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Where are we at? Is the statue still up or when is it coming down? Uh, yeah, the statue uh, is being removed pretty much as we speak. Um, it was just recently lifted uh, very carefully with a crane um, into a crate that was built uh, to transport it safely because it is a piece of public art. Uh, and it is uh, the crate is going to be lifted uh, onto the truck very shortly. Uh, this is something that your council has talked about uh, quite a bit. What was the, the defining moment or when? why was the decision made to remove it today? Uh, well, the decision was uh, contemplated over the past year. So back in, in 2017, actually inspired by the City of Winnipeg's actions in 2016, uh, the City of Victoria declared 2017 as a year of reconciliation. We quite quickly realized that reconciliation would take more than one year, obviously. But um, uh, last summer, City Council appointed uh, a body known as the City Family um, to do its to do its reconciliation work, or at least to begin its reconciliation work. And that's myself, a couple of councillors, representatives of the Songhees and Esquimalt Nations, and some other urban Indigenous people, uh, with the two nations 
chiefs and councils as the, the witnesses to the process. And it's obviously an Indigenous-focused um, approach, not a Western-focused approach to, to reconciliation, just from the words that we're using. So the city family gathered for a year and had many conversations, uh, very you know challenging and painful conversations um, in some cases, as you would imagine. And it became very clear from the First Nations members of the city family, as well as the nations, that if we wanted to continue the work of of reconciliation and create a space for a larger community dialogue, um, it felt important to the nations and and to, obviously, to city council as well, uh, to remove the statue of Johnny MacDonald from the front steps of City Hall, uh, store the statue safely, and have a conversation with the community, the nations, the city family about how best to reposition the statue in a way that tells a more fulsome story. And so was it the positioning of the statue that it was at the doors to City Hall that Yes, yes. I mean that really is that really is the the biggest issue. Um you know that Johnny McDonald obviously did a lot of fantastic things. He's the uh, prime minister, first prime minister of one of the best countries on earth. And especially now if you look around the world, right? Canada is a really great place. So there's no disputing any of that or for that matter erasing any of that. Um less less well known about Johnny McDonald, uh, although certainly it's started to come out over the past few years and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission before that, uh, he was the architect of the Indian residential school system, which had an impact on many, many, many Indigenous people and, you know, in in different ways, non-Indigenous people. And so, you know, the the problem is there was a statue out of context on the steps of Victoria City Hall. And if we are serious as a city about reconciliation, having, uh, you know, a, a painful colonial symbol on the steps of City Hall, you know, the local nations felt and, and council agreed uh, that that probably wasn't the best signal to send. So what do you say to critics that would say this is trying to erase history rather than learn from it? Yeah, I, I've heard that a lot. And, and actually, um, w- removing statues doesn't erase history. And no one's going to forget about Johnny McDonald because the city of Victoria uh, removed a statue from the front steps i mean that, that, when you when you put it like that it's almost ridiculous like if, if you know it, it's it's not an erasure at all what, what it is though and i think this is really important is it's an opportunity for canadians and and victorians here to have a broader conversation about history so i think it actually rather than erasing history it does the exact opposite it broadens history it deepens history you know when i left city hall yesterday i there were some people gathered outside some were taking photographs and i heard you know one one guy telling another uh, few guys gathered there, hey, did you know that, you know, when uh, South Africa uh, looked to set up its apartheid system, they came to Canada and studied the residential school system. And another guy said, oh, wow, I totally didn't know that. And, you know, so that's what's happening. The, the conversations about history, in fact, rather than erasing history, it's kind of highlighting history in a really interesting way. Uh, but there are there are re- reminders of that time too. In that, yes, John A. Macdonald was the the architect of residential schools. But there were residential schools under Pierre Elliott Trudeau. There are there are churches on corners where those might also remind people of this dark time in our history. Are there not reminders of of the racist past everywhere? Absolutely, uh, there are, and, and those are important, um, you know, flashpoints for conversation. Uh, th- this is not, and the other thing I've heard, in addition to the, you know, erasing history question, a lot I've heard the slippery slope question: Is it a slippery slope? Your city is named after a queen. Are you going to re- rename your city? For me, um, those those kinds of conversations aren't the ones that that I'm interested in having um, about the slippery slope. This is a very precise action for a very precise reason. Um, you know, church. 
churches stand, um, other things stand. But what, what we have control over as a local government is what is on the front steps of our city hall. And to have a, a symbol um, on the front steps of our city hall that is more complex than him just being the Prime Minister of First Prime Minister of Canada, um, you know, that that's the re- that's the reason for this precise action. It's not a blanket action. Uh, it's a very precise action. And do you see a connection or do you see a way that this helps us get to a place? Because one of the questions also is, OK, how does this help, though, First Nations people today? So uh, is there a connection between removing this statue and getting First Nations clean drinking water? Well, again, um, I'll leave the uh, notion of First Nations uh, clean drinking water to the federal ministers. This, this is, and I know obviously it's a national story, and of course we expected it would, but this is this is a relationship that's that's happening between the city of Victoria and the Songhees and the Squamalt Nations. So this isn't this isn't a political statement about what I think First Nations should have or not have across the country. Uh, this is a relationship building and a trust building exercise between the city of Victoria and the Songhees and Esquimalt Nations on whose homeland all of us citizens of Victoria happen to live on. So this is about reconciliation in Victoria. It's not a political statement about um, anything else. And I think you may have mentioned this off the top. Do we know where the statue will end up? We don't. Um, that's part of a larger conversation that the community needs to have. Uh, the signal that we got uh, clearly from the First Nations is in order to continue the, the conversation that we've been having at the city family and in order to uh, broaden the conversation about reconciliation in Victoria with the wider community, um, it, it, it really was felt that the first step we needed to take was to remove the statue, um, you know, quite literally in order to create a more inclusive space for community dialogue. And so that has now happened and the dialogue will continue and the statue will be repositioned somewhere uh, in a way that has a, a broader context and in a, sense, in a space that makes more sense. All right, Mayor Helps, we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Have a good day. You too. My next guest is an organizer uh, with a rally to save uh, the Sir John A. Macdonald statue. And Aaron Gunn joins me on the line. Aaron, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, I know that your group uh, members plan on gathering this afternoon. Looks like the statue will be gone by that point. What will you be doing uh, today in response to the removal of the statue? So we're really here to rally for this monument. Uh, it's a monument for our history, to our past, and the statue of our country's first prime minister. Now, I'm actually at the um, location right now, and uh, they have just literally picked uh, Sir John A. up by his neck, and um, they've now laid him flat. There's already about two or 3,000 people here already um, from both sides gathering. But uh, noon, we are gathering here to, to raise support for this to stand up to a mayor who's kind of shoved this uh, down everyone's throats and um, to say that this is really not the end of the fight. This is the beginning. There's municipal elections coming up in October. And I think it's time for a new mayor and a new council to be elected that uh, respects the will of our constituents and the history of Canada. The mayor, we just uh, were chatting with Lisa Helps. Uh, she was saying it's not it's so much the the, the statue itself, saying that, yes, he he was the first prime minister of the country. He did. He's done some did some amazing things as well. But she didn't like the placement, saying that the placement in front of City Hall could be could make people uncomfortable and that a new place will be decided. Uh, what do you say to uh, her argument that it's not so much the statue? It was the placement of the statue. Uh, well, I think you kind of 
the second thing he said there was even more important, which is that she's just basically saying some people get hurt feelings when they walk past the statue. And I don't think that's any way to run a government or to live in a society because someone's always going to be upset about something. From everyone that I've talked to in all of the, the online conversations, I, the majority of people um, on the whole taking John A for all of his faults uh, think he was a positive influence on Canadian society. He was a member of parliament uh, representing Victoria. Um, and if they really wanted to move him to a new location that was also prominent, they could have announced that as well. But the fact of the matter is they're, they're picking him up uh, basically with a noose around his neck about 10 minutes ago, and they're wrapping him up, putting him on a flatbed truck, and putting him into storage. So I'm not sure what their plan is. Look, I, I have no problem if they wanted to put a couple plaques uh, around the statue explaining the great things that he did for the country and the other things he did that history has judged uh, he didn't do a very good job on. Or, and his misguided policies, or if they wanted to erect another statue to pay homage to the suffering that the First Nations suffered. So I don't think that this was a reasonable uh, solution. And I mean, they announced it on on Wednesday out of the blue. They held like a quick vote on Thursday, and they're tearing it down Saturday. Um, I think it's I think it's wrong, and there's a lot of people that are upset. Um, the mayor took issue, or not, I suppose took issue isn't the right uh, phrase, but didn't uh, doesn't really go because one of the arguments being made is that by by removing pieces of history, uh, it's this attempt to erase it and it will stop the conversations about history and, and perhaps things that we could learn from. Uh, what do you say to that? Yeah, I think I think that if anything in this country, there's there's a lack of understanding about about history and, and knowledge of history, and I don't think. Removing statues is the way to go about um, of increasing the understanding, both of the amazing, again, the amazing things that he did and the things that uh, still some communities are feeling hurt by today. Uh, I don't think this, this helps anyone. I don't think this helps reconciliation. Reconciliation has to be uh, between communities, and I think, which is quite evident, this just drives a wedge between communities. It doesn't bring them any closer together. What kind of a response have you been getting from your rally, uh, even in the past few days, organizing the rally? Well, the city obviously didn't give us a lot of time to put something together. Although I can tell you, um, we've talked about a lot of topics, I think 50, 50 topics or videos. I've never had um, this many messages into my inbox, uh, this much uh, this many people trying to get a hold of me, uh, where's the rally, when's the rally happening, uh, sending messages of support. Of course, there's some people um, that are that are supportive of taking the statue down, and uh, they're pretty fired up as well. So I think it's a pretty, like I said, it's a divisive issue that didn't have to come up, that the mayor and council are bringing up two months before an election that, that as far as I know, nobody ran on. So I think it's, again, it's, it's unfortunate and not what our country or city or our province needed. Is it the lack of consultation? Because I've seen that in some of the comments as well. And you mentioned this, the vote was held on Thursday and here we have the statues already been removed on a Saturday morning. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I kind of, I don't know if you can hear this. There's all this crazy yelling happening behind me. I, I, I'm about 50 feet away from what, I'm not exactly sure what's going on, but um, I, the, the consultation, I think, exacerbated the situation. Uh, for me, it's not just the consultation. It's the fact that Sir John A is, is part of our history and, on the whole, a great prime minister. He's responsible for the for Confederation and, and the National Railway and bringing British Columbia uh, into the country. Now, um, the way they went about doing it, without a democratic mandate, without the consultation, trying to move it so quickly and kind of ram it through to avoid a public debate in the in the middle of August while half the city's out on the holidays, I think... Um, just made the situation worse and just made a lot of people uh, even that much more ticked off.
How do you do that? Though? When you when you talk about that, he when you say he's a great prime minister, and I think there are people that agree with that, but he was also the architect of residential schools, something that is having negative consequences even today. How do you how do you honor somebody that that has such uh, such a difference when you look at his entire record? Yeah, I think the thing is, is he wasn't perfect. He was far from perfect. But every prime minister was, especially any any leader in the 19th century, 18th century. You start you start viewing them through the uh, the eyes of of today and our values and our and our ethics. Um, you're always going to get that. I mean, look down to our friends in the United States with George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. Um, you know, you you go through in 50 years from now, are they going to want to? topple statues of Martin Luther King because he wasn't for uh, gay rights in the 1960s. I mean, you got to draw the line somewhere. And I prefer to celebrate our achievements while learning from our mistakes. I think that there's a happy medium to do that. And uh, look, there's, there's uh, a lot of the stuff that John A. Uh, said that wasn't great on residential schools and on, and, and on race was a product of his time uh, of the 19th century. And the same things were happening in the United States and in Europe at, at that time. And it's it's just kind of uh, something that happens, and I hope that we can, you know, build our future going forward without tearing down our past. All right, Aaron, uh, I'll let you go there. It sounds like there's a lot happening with the removal of the statue. Uh, thanks so much uh, for, uh, for moving to the side. Thanks for uh, joining us today and talking about this. Appreciate it. Well, as we know, cannabis legislation will be coming in federally on October 17th. The Cannabis Act poised to become law on that day. That will mean the legal sale of cannabis for recreational use will be in place across the country. So what will this mean when it comes to people being under the influence and getting behind the wheel? Well, Statistics Canada has put out some new information and taking a look at that exact issue, saying that more than a million Canadians have reported being the passenger in a vehicle that is being driven by somebody who had consumed cannabis so within a pretty small window around driving. Um, others tell Statistics Canada that they don't plan on consuming more cannabis once, it, once it's legalized. But what might change is enforcement, is how we deal with people perhaps having consumed and being behind the wheel. Well, joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Kyla Lee, a criminal lawyer with Acumen in law. Kyla, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, what do you think will change or will things change as far as enforcement and what role police play uh, once cannabis is legalized and it becomes uh, a legal uh, substance and uh, people behind the wheel? I think nothing is going to change as far as the rates of people getting behind the wheel after consuming cannabis. We're seeing data coming out of uh, the U.S., that's uh, the various states that have legalized cannabis to support that. Um, what will change is enforcement, and police are going to be paying particular attention now to the issue of drug-impaired driving, and it's something that they weren't trained on as much to deal with before. Does it seem a bit odd, though, because even though it's going to be a legalized substance, this whole idea of people consuming cannabis and getting behind the wheel, that's not new. So wouldn't it seem like there should be an enforcement component now if it's so widespread? You'd think there would have been, but unfortunately there there hasn't been any focus or emphasis on the training or detection of this. 
Um, and you can see that in, in the way that the police have been raising red flags about cannabis legalization and the date uh, for legalization saying we're not going to be ready. We need to train more officers on the detection. They only in the last couple weeks announced the saliva tester and whether they're going to have officers, you know, with those devices in their hands come October 17th and train to use them and how many. All those things take time and, and the police keep saying they're not going to be ready. So what do you think will happen as far as do we go back to the roadside sobriety test or what will they be doing if there's this idea? Because on the one hand, it's strange. On the one hand, we're saying that the number of people who perhaps have consumed and are behind the wheel, that's not going to change. But we're going to have increased enforcement. So so how will they actually do that? Uh, Well, one of the things that they're bringing out is saliva testing to determine whether somebody has uh, any drugs in their body, including cannabis. And then they will have the roadside sobriety test. So those three, three tests, the pen test and walking the line and standing on one foot for 30 seconds. Uh, do you anticipate, because I know you and, and Acumen Law has dealt a lot with roadside suspensions and with people who have consumed alcohol or who have been accused of consuming alcohol and fighting those tickets. Do you anticipate we're going to see something like that when it comes to cannabis? Yes, British Columbia has already drafted legislation um, which is ready to go when um, cannabis legalization rolls around, allowing uh, short suspensions on the basis of saliva testing and allowing for longer suspensions on the basis of drug recognition evaluations or blood test results. Is it different, though, as far as how long it can stay in your system and how they can actually test for it? It is. Cannabis isn't like alcohol where, you know, you drink it and then it eliminates uh, at a a relatively stable rate over a period of time. Cannabis, um, and in particular THC, is stored in the fat cells of your body. And so it can stay in your body for weeks or even months after it's been used. And it breaks down over time and is re-released into your bloodstream without the impairing effects. So do you think it's a learning curve for people or something needs to change there in that I think, at least I would hope, we've come to a point with drinking alcohol and driving. Uh, We should know that you can't drink a certain amount of alcohol and safely get behind the wheel. Uh, But even this last week, listening to some of the call-in segments about this exact topic, uh, there was one caller who said, oh no, it's absolutely fine because I know how to consume cannabis so that my body gets high but my brain doesn't. That sounds a bit ridiculous. It does sound a bit ridiculous, and and I think that person neglects the fact that the law doesn't require your brain to be impaired. It's either your body or your brain or both that can be impaired that could lead to lead to a conviction. So I wouldn't rely on that type of logic. But no, I, I think one of the problems about having cannabis as a generally socially accepted but illegal substance um, from you know up until this point has been that have these misconceptions about their ability to use it and drive, and also that we haven't had scientific research going into the ability to use it and drive. So there's no messaging that the government can give to people to say, this is how much you can have, or or, this is how long you have to wait after using it, that's effective or applicable to anybody, because the science hasn't caught up to where our society is with use of the substance. And is it also, and I know that we can't compare it, it's not like apples and apples to compare alcohol and cannabis, but they are substances that get us, that alter our our state. It's also different in that if you're getting up in the morning and the first thing you do, or in the first hour of getting up, you 
pour yourself a glass of wine or a beer, I think we would all agree there's a problem. Whereas if you get up in the morning, it seems to be far more acceptable if somebody is, is smoking a joint or part of one or ingesting some, some amount of cannabis. Yes, and lots of people, I think, too, have been sort of self-medicating with cannabis, using it for its medicinal effects without going through the legal medicinal channels. And that's another component. We don't use alcohol as a medicine. Um, it's been a long time since we, we've ever done that. We, we sort of accept now that alcohol is not a medicine. Um, but cannabis is different. And so people use it differently. A lot of people are, you know, are willing to just, you know, continue using their, their you know, their dealer or their source for, for cannabis and not go through medical channels, but use it to treat some type of an issue. So how do you see things unfolding then if we're not we're not going to see a huge difference perhaps in in the number of people who whether they're using it medicinally or recreationally it's all going to be legal as of October 17th how do you see things unfolding when it comes to enforcement and and in particular looking at cannabis use and driving I think we're going to see an initial spike in the number of cannabis driving related arrests and prohibitions, um, but that's steadily going to decline over time as as not only we adjust to uh, to legalization and the level of enforcement, but also police learn more about what is impairing and what's not impairing, and as the courts develop the law in this area, and that experience has been borne out again in the United States, where where we've seen that same thing: the initial spike followed by the decline. Does it seem that we could have learned more or been more prepared looking even at other jurisdictions like the states? We absolutely could have. And I think one of the big disservices that we've done generally as a society is not looking at what's been going on in the United States pre-legalization and and recognize that this has been an ongoing issue in Canada despite the fact that cannabis is illegal and, and not being prepared before legalization and before the announcement of that. Do you imagine then that uh, your business is going to get a bit busier come, say, November, December? Oh, absolutely. It's it's going to be very busy. <laughs> is it? And, and, and we joke a little bit about that. But is it is it a more serious issue that that perhaps it's not being taken seriously enough that that this is and maybe because there is there are so many different substances and not all uh, cannabis products get people high. And maybe there's some confusion about what you can consume and what. To what is still okay to get behind the wheel and what's not? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you have uh, CBD, which is non-impairing, and THC, which is impairing, and then you can use them in conjunction and mitigate the impairing effects of THC with CBD. So there's, there's all of this confusion around that. Um, but I, I, I do agree that, that it is a problem that we haven't been taking it this seriously. And, and part of me thinks that somebody who lost a family member or uh, or, or loved one to a, a drug-impaired driver may have some rights in, in suing the police for not dealing with the problem when we all know that people have been using cannabis in Canada, that it's, you know, it's been socially acceptable. And we all know now that the police have simply been unprepared to deal with it. All right, we'll leave it there. But Kyla Lee, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me.